I appreciate that. I asked Teresa when she came up, do you ever wake up grouchy in the morning? And she said she usually tries to let him sleep. <laughs> Ask her. She said that. She, she knew the joke, I guess. But uh, I, I was reading this and thought it was funny. Three sisters, ages 92, 94, and 96, lived in a house together. One night, the 96-year-old decides to draw a bath. She puts her foot in, stops, and yells down the stairs, was I getting in the bath? or getting out of the bath. The 94-year-old yells back, I don't know, I'll come up and see. She gets halfway up the stairs, pauses and yells down to the 92-year-old. Was I going up the stairs or coming down? And the 92-year-old sitting at the table having tea, listening to her sisters, shakes her head and says, I sure hope I never get that forgetful. She knocks on wood for good measure and says, I'll be up to help both of you as soon as I see who's at the door. Oh, corny jokes, but uh, that's what preachers do, I guess. We're looking at 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll eventually be in chapter 2. We're going to read two verses in chapter 5. Do you know we're all called to preach? We're not all called to be pastors, but we are all called to preach the gospel. Did you know that? Someone said, do you believe in women preachers? I said, absolutely. And of course, they take two steps back wondering what I'm going to say. But we're all called to preach the gospel to every creature. Amen? We're not all called a pastor. But uh, another calling we have is the, the ministry of reconciliation, which ties right in with that. We are called to reconcile people to God, which is, again, being witnesses and soul winners for God. So we're all called to a ministry of reconciliation. When you find 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. We're going to read that. Stand with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 19 and 20. It says, To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed to us, see there, has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead be you reconciled to God. What a great passage. Let's pray. God bless us. As we take a look in the book for a walk in the world, bless us, Lord, as we study your word. Speak to hearts. I, I know you have a plan this morning. You knew who would be here. You knew what I would preach. And you just have a, a plan this morning. And I thank you for the fact that you have one, even though we don't know what's going to happen this morning in the hearts of people. You do. And we just pray that you'll bless and you'll have, you'll reign in this service. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Corinth was a very dangerous city. And when we preach from a book, we usually do some introductory things, and so maybe you've heard some of this. I think I preached on 1 Corinthians a, a several months back. You may remember that it's so dangerous that Roman soldiers were not allowed to go there on leave. Dangerous. Um, and we know that uh, the Corinthian chief gods were on the Mount Olympus, and there were several of them. We know that Apollo was their god of music and light. Arius was their god of war. And they had a temple dedicated to Aphrodite, which was the goddess of love and beauty. And at that temple were a thousand prostitutes working to bring honor and glory to this false god. And again, I say, where are these gods today? If they really existed, they would still be here. 
But you see, they're all just puppets of Satan and not even real. There's only one true God, and that's the Lord Jesus. Uh, the one God and one mediator between man and Christ is the Lord Jesus. But here, we talk about this city. Paul's in Philippi and he writes a letter. Fifty-some years after Christ died, he writes a letter to the Corinthian church. Now, he wrote a letter just prior to that, 1 Corinthians. And the purpose of that letter was just to rebuke. I mean, it was a letter of eviction and expulsion. I mean, he just reamed them out. But remember, he's under the inspiration of God, so what he is saying is what God wants him to say. And he's writing these letters as God, as God breathes on him. That's what inspiration means. It means God breathed. So he's writing these letters. And the first book of Corinthians, he wrote them a letter of rebuke. There was division in the church. He said, I don't want you on my side, and I don't want you on Apollos' side. In other words, be on the side of Jesus. Stand for what's right. And be a person who has a ministry of reconciliation. A person who reconciles brings two parties together. He knows they have a conflict. He finds a way to bring them together. He doesn't go to one and say, I'm on your side. I don't like him either. He doesn't go to the other one and say, I'm on your side today. I got mad at him. No, he brings people together. And we are to bring people to God. That's reconciliation. And we are to cause unity in the church by bringing factions together and say, let's end this thing. Sometimes you can grab people by the hand and say, follow me and go into a Sunday school room and say, I know you guys have a problem, but I, I want to, well, you know, I'm praying for you. I want the problem to end. Let's pray right now. And you guys find a place where you can forgive. You know what I want to be? I want to be a grace guy. I want to be big on grace. God's been awfully big on grace in my life. I want this church to be a grace church. In other words, somebody who's made mistakes and, and in some cases ruined a majority of their life or part of their life, maybe hurt other people, done some terrible things, that they can come back. And if they've repented, they can come back and we can receive them in full fellowship. That's what a grace church does. They may have to bring somebody before the church. I've, several times in churches I've had to ask people to come up and ask for forgiveness. One time we had a little girl pregnant out of wedlock and she asked the church to forgive her. And it was hard for her, but it was hard for her family. It was hard for the church because it was one of those awkward situations and she was gracious when she said, I've done the wrong thing. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And we were gracious back. We had a big shower after that. We didn't tell her we would if she confessed, but we, we were planned it, you know, and we did. And we just poured our love and she didn't quit the church. You see, Paul's first letter was to say you're wrong and he was rebuking. There was actually a man sleeping with his mother-in-law. I mean, that beats all, I guess. I told, I told someone Peter had a mother-in-law and the Catholic Church says Peter was never married. Who could have a mother-in-law if they weren't married and who would want a mother-in-law if they weren't married? But here's a guy that's committing immorality with his mother-in-law. And there were other problems in the church. Read 1 Corinthians 5. There are sins there listed as sins of excommunication. And if you get involved in immorality, you will be confronted, given an opportunity to repent one-on-one. -on -one. If that doesn't work, you'll be confronted with witnesses. And then finally, you'll actually be voted out of the church unless you repent. That's tough stuff. As a pastor, that's hard. And it's one of the most difficult things I've ever done. I'm kind of a shepherd type, easygoing in a lot of ways, but 
there's a point in time where I draw a line in the sand and say, this is where it ends. And you read those sins, and do you know that one of them is a railer? A person who's loud and a troublemaker that says things and, and is a gossip, and she, she or he, I shouldn't say just, just she, sometimes it's he. There was a lady came forward one time and said, Pastor, I want to lay my tongue on the altar. He said, the altar's not long enough. But, but whoever is the person running their mouth and causing trouble, do you know that is an offense that can cause you to be put out of the church, to be voted out? That's scary to think about. Now, that doesn't mean they forbid them to come, but they were no longer a member. They couldn't take the Lord's Supper. They couldn't work or serve. They could be under the preaching, but that's it. Now, I don't plan on doing that. Everyone's thinking, who's going to de-church this morning? It's not going to happen. We don't know of any of that. But be careful. And, and guard your life. You know, the devil is trying to destroy lives. And he wants to destroy you right now. And he's always planning and scheming. We'll talk more about that. I'm still introducing this letter. So he writes the first letter, rebuke. And they had to put some people out of the church. But then they repented. So the second letter is to say, now you need to receive them back. And he tells them how to receive them back into the church, to forgive them and give them a fresh start. And that's where the church fails a lot of times. We can, we can put someone out of the church. We can bring about church discipline. But how are we when that person repents? Do they feel uncomfortable in our presence? Do we give them dirty looks? Oh, what are they doing back here? They're just trouble. And that's not the way we're supposed to receive them. We're supposed to be gracious. How, how annoyed do you think God is with Dan Mao when Dan Mao has to every day ask God to forgive him for something, whether it be eating too much or tailgating or yelling or kicking the dog? I, I wouldn't. My dog's so small, if I kicked it, it'd be like a soccer ball. But, you know, I, every day. I have to do that every day because in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. And I have a rotten, rotten, Outer man, don't I? My inner man's perfect because that's God in me. But my outer man, he's a mess. And don't you think God gets annoyed by my constant stupidity? Sometimes it's not premeditated. It's just the natural result of a natural man. You know, you just do something. You're like, why in the world did I do that? I remember years ago, I was a young kid. We'd, I'd been saved and we had a basketball game and a fight broke out. And I started the fight. The whole game ended. That's the natural man doing what comes natural. But the spiritual man says, don't do that. But God must get annoyed when I keep coming back and saying, God, I'm so sorry about that thought, about my attitude. Please, please help me to be what I ought to be. But yet, what does God always do when I confess? He's faithful. That's how we should be when it comes to others who have fallen into sin rather than be annoyed and continue to be annoyed and mistreat them and, and, and keep them at a distance. We should receive them. And that's what 2 Corinthians was all about. Receiving people after they had done the wrong thing. Now, forgiveness is good for both parties. Did you know forgiveness is good for you? If you have to forgive others, it's good for you. Why? because you won't become bitter in your life. If you don't forgive people, you become bitter. Bitterness is believing God made a mistake. Bitterness is believing they don't deserve the same grace you receive from God. 
I was reading something. I thought this was interesting. An article about the effects of bitterness. Not Christian people, just a secular perspective. It says, doctors have concluded that bitterness harms us physically. It causes metabolism issues, immune response issues, organ failure, and physical disease. Bitterness. Think of that. Psychologists say as well that it causes anger and hostility, causes, causes us emotional problems. So bitterness causes you physical problems, emotional problems, and might I add from God's Word today, spiritual problems. Because the Bible says if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. And you're out of fellowship. Forget praying. I don't mean forget praying. I mean forget God hearing your prayer until you confess that. I prayed today, I pray almost every day for some people that have hurt me. God, give me the grace to, grace to forgive them. I've said I forgive them. I try in my heart to forgive them, but there's still some pain. And I did a lot of reading on this when I was studying for a, a degree I was working on. And one of the things about uh, um, uh, forgiveness and, and, and dealing with other people is while you make a decision to forgive, there's still sometimes this emotional attachment to where even though you've made a decision to forgive somebody, emotionally you still have trouble, you know, with that. And so that may be life-lasting, but make the choice to forgive. And, and we've said before, don't make people come crawling to you, apologizing to you. That's your pride. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He didn't make anybody crawl to him for forgiveness when they put him on the cross. So anyway, we hear in, in first, the first six verses, Paul's determined to write them so that they don't have too much sorrow. In these six verses, he says, he uses several, several verses, several words that are interesting. He uses the word heaviness. He uses the word sorrow, anguish of heart, sorry, grief, grief. In all these words he uses here in these first six verses. Why does he use those words? Because when you forgive, you free people. You free them. Let me talk about something practical. The Bible discourages borrowing money from someone. Now we've all borrowed maybe for a house, but your house usually increases in value. We've all borrowed for cars, but they decrease in value. But borrowing money is not wise. I know... Uh, J.R. Faulkner, a friend of mine, he paid cash for every house he ever owned. Now, that's tough to do that. But borrowing money is a mistake. The Bible says the borrower is a slave to the lender. We have too many people borrowing money. We, we borrow money because we want to buy things we can't afford, you know, to impress people we don't like with money we don't have. So you've borrowed money and you've, and you've loaned money. But let me tell you something. When you loan money to someone, you could be making a big mistake unless in your heart you decide that if they can't pay it back, you're going to forgive them. Sometimes well-intending people borrow money and then fall on hard times. They can't pay you back, and maybe they can never pay you back. And you can glare at them and give them dirty looks and take them to court. You know it's not right to take a brother to court. You know, say if that ever happens in this church, you'll be brought before the church because the Bible said that's wrong to sue a brother. But it's not wrong to forgive somebody who owes you money. So when you loan money to a friend, think of it this way. I'm going to loan them money, 
and trust they pay it back, but if they don't, I'm going to live with it, and I'm not going to hold a grudge against that person. Let me say the other side of that is those of you that have borrowed money, don't think, well, I'll borrow money because preacher said, and then I don't have to pay it back because preacher said. No, you're not right with God when you don't pay people back. So you have to think about that as well. But the thing of it is, when you loan money, which is not wise, you are obligated to forgive them when they can't pay you back. Why? Because if you don't forgive them, how do they feel? If they're well-intending people who would like to pay you back, but they've lost their job, they're without, they can't pay their bills. And if you don't forgive them, they're going to be uncomfortable around you and not want to come to church or to work or wherever. Maybe they're your neighbor. So forgiveness takes a lot of pressure off them. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, we don't want too much to be on them. He says that they, they, they can't handle it. Look at verse 6. Sufficient to such a man as this punishment which was inflicted of many. The whole church disciplined these people. He said, that's enough. That's enough. The whole church disciplined them. Don't You don't need to glare at them and sue them. You need to realize that they are in trouble and you need to forgive them. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But Paul was determined for people to not have too much sorrow. He says, but if any have caused grief, he says, verse 5, he hath not grieved me, but in part that I may not overcharge you. So he, he did not want people suffering anguish because they weren't forgiven. If someone in our church makes a mistake, and every time they come to church, they're shunned and avoided, we've done the wrong thing. Once somebody repents, seeks forgiveness, it is over. And you have no right, no right to treat them any different than you treat anyone else in church. So he's determined not to cause trouble. Now we're going to jump down to verses 7 to 11, or excuse me, verses 12 to 17. So we're jumping way down. I want to talk about a couple things here because I want to give you some more information in this chapter, and then we're going to move back to verse 7. But verse 12, we find here, he mentions a timing, the timing of God, how there was a door opened. Then he talks in verse 13 about he was troubled because he couldn't find Titus. The next verse talks about triumph in Christ. And then verses 15, 16, and 17, he talks about several things. He talks about a sweet savor. He says in verse 15, we are a sweet savor to God. And Ephesians tells us Christ was a sweet savor to God. In Philippians, Paul, Paul says your gift was a sweet savor to God. What is that, Brother Dan? That word has to do with smell or taste. Our nose can distinguish, I read, just this week, our nose can distinguish 10,000 different smells. I have a brother-in-law, bless his heart, he's disabled mentally. I won't tell you how he's related, but he's related. And if he's been in my house, I know by this, you know. And, you know, we understand that our nose is really a gift from God and that we can smell things and it saves us sometimes uh, from some disasters. I had a, a friend, he's with the Lord now, but he was out on visitation. And he was in the front yard, and he stepped back, and they had the cover off their septic tank, and he went in all the way up to his neck. And he got home, and it was wintertime. He had to get in his truck and get home, and his wife said, you're not coming in. <laughs> he said, there's the hose. <laughs> you take your clothes off, 
and you spray off of that hose before you come in the house. And uh, I'm not going to talk about that smell, but yeah, that you know, we we understand our nose works just fine. Uh, and sometimes, you know, people who have bad breath, halitosis, will be more scientific about it. And you think, oh boy, here he comes. You almost hope they're out of breath when they approach you, because you can't hardly take it. Our nose is a great thing, and and but God, our attitude is well pleasing to God. It's like the burnt offering when they burnt the animal. That smoke pleased God because it said to God that sin was totally taken care of. They burn incense, which would taste and smell good to God. Did you know your taste and your smell are combined? The same glands work work together. But anyway, it's an interesting thing. I remember in youth group, we took an onion and we cut it up into small pieces. And we took an apple and cut it up into small pieces. And we put a blindfold on kids and said, all right, what are you eating? And we put an onion right by their nose. And then we put a spoon of that apple in it. And they go, oh, it's, oh, it's onion. And they'd say, no, it's not onion. No, it's not. And you take the blindfold off. And they'd realize the smell made them taste onion, even though they were eating an apple. Uh, our nose is amazing. Without it, you know, we just wouldn't enjoy life as much. I knew a guy had such a big nose he could put quarters in his nose. Not kidding. He could put a quarter up in his nose. I won't say who he is, but I, some of you would know him. But anyway, we're a sweet savor. Then it talks about our sufficiency uh, in verse 16. It's a great word. Uh, it says t- uh, in verse 16 of chapter 2, to one we are a savor of death and, de- and to the other a savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? We learn in another chapter our sufficiency is Christ. What is Christ sufficient for? We'll look at chapter 3 and verse 5. First of all, He's sufficient for our spiritual needs. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. You know, without Him we're nothing. With Him we're sufficient. And then we see in chapter 9, verse 8, we're not going to turn there, but He talks about being sufficient for material things. God can provide everything we need. Food, clothing, and shelter. And then in chapter 12, He's sufficient for physical needs. Paul said three times, God, will you please help me with my physical problem? We don't know what it is. Some suppose it was blindness. We don't know what was wrong. But he asked, and what did God say? I'm not going to take that problem away from you, but my grace is sufficient. God is sufficient. And then he concludes this section talking about sincerity in verse 17, talking about the corruption of the gospel. We don't peddle and we don't retail. That's what that word means, the gospel. Too many people are making money off the gospel. You get your gospel ties and your pins and your gospel this and your gospel that and all kinds of money made in that. The Bible, printing Bibles is a big money maker. I'm glad for Bible printing, but there's a lot of profit in that. And I'm not saying people are wrong, but if your motive of whatever you do is to make money in the ministry of the Lord, your motive is wrong. So anyway, back, now we go back to where we want to be in verse 12. Because we want, excuse me, in verse 7. We're going to study verses 7 through 11 for a few moments. In verse 7, he says, So that contrawise you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. So we forgive others so they're not overcome with too much sorrow. And so that we don't become bitter. That's what he says here in verse 7. Now, so there are several reasons to forgive. One is right here that the offending party is an overwhelmed with sorrow. 
The second reason, back in Matthew, look to Matthew chapter 6. Another reason to forgive, I've already stated it, now we're going to look at the verses, and you need to mark these in your Bible. Matthew chapter 6. I've met more bitter people in my life. I was sitting in church one time, and I was at a special meeting, and I was sitting out listening to the preacher, and the lady in front of me, I heard her say to her husband, I don't like him. And I didn't like his kin either. And I thought, this lady doesn't have the spirit of grace. That's not Christ-like, folks. We need to forgive and be grace people. Amen? Anyway, look here. It says in chapter 6, we forgive because we don't want someone to sorrow too much. Now we forgive so the Heavenly Father forgives us. 6, 14, and 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Why do we forgive others? So God forgives us. Did you know if you harbor a grudge against somebody and you have bitterness and you haven't forgiven them, not only does it hurt you physically, emotionally, but it hurts you spiritually. Because you can't pray. Oh, you can pray, but God doesn't hear your prayer. Until you admit you're bitter and go and forgive that person, you're out of fellowship with God. I've seen amazing things in, in the world of grace, and you have too. I've, see, I've seen on TV these shows where uh, someone murders someone's child and those people are Christian people and they find a reason to forgive and even go and visit the people at the, at the jail and you're like, that's amazing. God's able. God is able. God's a God of grace. He forgave you. And He will forgive others. And that's an amazing thing. So second of all, we forgive so God forgives us. Third, verse 11, back in our text. But back in our text, the third reason is so Satan doesn't take advantage of us. Look at verse 11. Verse 10 says, To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. And he goes on to talk about the importance of forgiving. And then he says in verse, verse 10, in the last line, he says, For your sakes forgive I in the person of Christ. That word person is translated face. In other words, God is watching. So when you are in conflict with somebody, guess who the third party is? God. Paul's, Paul's saying here, I forgive in the person of Christ, in the presence of Christ. Christ is there, so we need to forgive. Then verse 11, if not, what does it say? Lest Satan should get an advantage of us. He's going to take advantage of you. And it says here, we shouldn't be ignorant of his devices. Are you aware of Satan's devices? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the uh, eyes, the pride of life. In Matthew 4, he causes people to forget Scripture. In Mark 4, he misquotes Scripture. He uses signs and wonders to deceive people. He did that back in the day of Christ. He's going to do that in the tribulation period. He, he's a deceiver. He resists us according to Zechariah 3. He hinders ministry opportunity. He accuses us, not to mention bitterness. And here's another device, causing us not to forgive people. How dare us not forgive others when He's forgiven us? How dare us? Who do we think we are to harbor something against someone? God's grace is sufficient. And if it takes care of my sin and He forgives me, I surely can forgive others. And even if I have to pray every day to help me with that emotional baggage that's attached to the pain of being hurt, and that may be a daily battle for you. 
But God can give you that grace and help you to forgive. Now, Satan attacks us three times. One is right here. He attacks us spiritually if we don't forgive. Look at chapter 12. Same book, chapter 12, where he attacks us physically if we become proud. I like Paul. You know Paul means little. He was a, probably a little guy. He was a Pharisee. A Pharisee's a separatist. Extreme separation. A very religious group, but of course lost. Sadducees were an aristocratic, wealthy group, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. Sad, you see. But these two groups were groups, evil groups. And Paul got saved. He was a Pharisee, threatening to kill people, had already been responsible for killing Stephen. But look what he says. As a man of God, he's humble. In verse 7, he says here, and lest I should be exalted above measures through the abundance of revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Satan physically attacks us. God allows that to keep us humble. Isn't that something? Keeps us humble. I've heard people, and you've heard people, sometimes on national TV who are sick and dying, and you see a totally different person. They're now broken. God may have to break you. I don't know what God will do to break you, but he kept Paul humble. This physical problem kept Paul humble. He said, lest I be exalted above measure. He had, he had had so many great things happen in his life. He had revelation and visions, and he wrote 14 books of the Bible, and he started 51 churches. I mean, here's a man that did everything you could imagine for God, but he realized if he wasn't careful, he would become proud, and he realized God gave him an ailment, a physical ailment, maybe his blindness, we don't know, that kept him humble. He had to stay on his knees to live day to day. And then we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He attacks us physically. He attacks us uh, spiritually if we don't forgive, physically if we, so we don't become proud. And then in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, verse 5, he attacks us morally. When does he attack us morally? Well, this is one that uh, always stirs up some thoughts in a church. But he attacks us morally if we don't give our spouses sex. Let's say it. You know, Paul said it. The word benevolence means sex. And here it says in verse 4, verse 3, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. That means to have sex with your wife. And the wife the same. And the bodies don't belong the wife's body belongs to the husband, and the husband's body belongs to the wife. And you can't deprive each other of that. Why? Of a man or a woman who needs it isn't getting at what happens. You know what happens. It says it in the Bible, but you experienced it yourself. He says, verse 5, defraud ye not one another except there be consent. In other words, if both parties agree not to have it for a time because of health issues or whatever, that's okay. But look what it says. It goes on to say, during that time, you need to pray and fast because obviously temptation and come together again. That what? Satan tempt you not for your inconsistency. Long, awkward pause, Pastor. Do I need to say more? Meet one another's needs. Now let me just say this. 
you say, well, I cheated on my spouse because they didn't meet my needs, shame on you. There's no excuse for cheating on your partner. There's no excuse. And that can hurt a marriage. It can hurt you and your partner emotionally. It can cause great depression, a lot of pain, a lot of anxiety, a lack of trust. It's a painful thing. Now, God will forgive you if you've done that. But don't say, well, it's my partner's fault. Sin is always a choice we make to gratify our own sinful nature. But, on the other side of that, meet each other's needs. If you need counseling, get it. But so we find three times in the New Testament where Satan attacks us morally, physically, and spiritually. That's, that's the Word of God. Now we're going back to verse 7 as we wrap this up in verse 7. Verse 7, I love this verse. Now, we talked about forgiveness. It says, first of all, so that contrawise ye ought rather to forgive him. He suffered enough, the church punished him, now you need to forgive him. The word forgive is translated so many ways, it's our word charizomai. We get our word charitable from it, our word charismatic from it. I'm not justifying false doctrine, okay? But we get several English words from this Greek word. You know the Greek word. But it's translated in your Bible to give, it's translated to deliver, to grant something to someone. So when we forgive, we are actually giving someone something. We're, we're, we're giving them a release from all those things we talked about in the first six verses. A release from their sorrow, their guilt, their shame. It's wonderful to be released from that. I've been forgiven for things in my life, haven't you? Isn't it good when you know somebody's truly forgiven you? Isn't it good to know your spouse is forgiven you? <laughs> Isn't it good to know your children are forgiven you? I've asked my children to forgive me, I guess, hundreds of times. And my wife, thousands, I guess. I mean, it's a wonderful experience when someone says, yes, I forgive you, and it's over. There's nothing like that. So he says, first of all, we forgive. And then we add another word here. It says here, to forgive him, and then what's the next word? And comfort him. Comfort him. You know this word as well. It's the word para. Para. Paragraph. Parachute. It means to come up beside someone. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. He comes up beside us. In the New Testament, it's translated encourage, console, consolation. Barnabas. He was the great, he was great at consoling people, at comforting people at encouraging people. I love that about Barnabas. And you know, we're told not only do we forgive someone, but we need to comfort them. You don't just say, well, I'm forgiving them, Lord. No, no, no. You go to them, and you come up beside them, and you let them know, hey, I want you to know we're on the same team. I I'm sorry that I, I was upset with you, but I want you to know it's over in my heart. And they, they'll say, well, let me I, I, you don't need to talk about it anymore. It's over. I forgive you. And you comfort them. And then you say, you know what? I've done some of the same things before. That is so helpful to help a weaker brother get back on his feet. So we comfort them. Why? So the why? So they don't become overcome. And comfort him, lest perhaps 
Such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. You know, it's good to know that some people feel bad about sinning. It really scares me in this world. This world, we have people who feel, don't feel bad at all about sinning. I had a guy recently say, I, I don't pay taxes. He's a Christian. I don't pay taxes. I don't like what they're doing with the money. Uh, abortions. I said, I don't like abortions either. It's murder, and God's going to judge our country. But do you know, when Jesus said, render unto Caesar that which was Caesar's, go back and study the Roman uh, court and the Roman leaders at that time. Many were homosexuals. There's actually a archaeologists have found an alleyway behind a uh, Roman where some of the Roman leaders were, and there's a bunch of babies, skeletons in that where women had thrown their discarded baby out there to die. And what did Jesus say? Pay taxes to them. They're responsible for how they spend the money. You're not. So you pay your taxes. It's like people say, this happened right here many years ago. I came here 13 years ago. There are 40 people. First week, someone said, dropped in a check, says, I hadn't been tithing because I didn't trust what the leaders were doing the money. I said, shame on you. You're still supposed to tithe. God will hold the leaders accountable. But you're supposed to give cheerfully. That's a word. Hilarious. Hilarion. Hilarious. Even though maybe you think, well, those numbskulls made a bad decision with the money. And I'm sure the church leaders here may do that sometimes. We're human, and we make mistakes, and we may even sin. Yes. Not that you didn't know that. But you don't want them swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. And uh, getting back to our text, about forget the word overmuch. We find that translated so many ways. I love Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly, that's the same word, Abundantly, that's the same word. Above all what we ask or think, God does more than we even imagine. That's the word here. You don't want them to have too much sorrow. So we, we, we comfort. So we forgive, then we comfort. And guess what? We have to take it one step further. Verse 8. Wherefore, I beseech you, I beg you, I challenge you, I exhort you, that you would confirm your love toward him. So there's another step to this. This word confirm has to do with judicial resolution. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, you know, if you go to court and the judge says innocent or guilty, it's over. In this case, you go to that person and let them know it's over. I mean, when you confess that, when you admitted your guilt, showed your sorrow for it, it's over. It can't, you can't be tried twice. It's over. I like that. I like that. Now back to verse 11 and we'll close. Lest we do all this, Satan should get an advantage of us for we're not ignorant of his devices. Now that word devices, it's translated several ways. Look in chapter 3, verse 14, the next page over. And you mark this, you can draw a line there if you want. It says, but their minds were blinded. You see the word minds? Same Greek word. Devices, the same word as minds. Look at verse 4 of chapter 4. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds. There it is again. The word mind. It's translated in 2 Corinthians 10.5. Thoughts. Thoughts. So what does Satan do? He works on your mind. 
This morning, I got on my stationery early in the morning to ride. I rode almost, I guess, about 30 minutes. And on the stationery, I began to pray. And I'm a little ADD sometimes, and my mind likes to wander, and I have a great imagination, and I can't concentrate, and so I have to say, Lord, help me, I want to pray. And I'll actually quote Scripture. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. I quoted that this morning. And I quoted, gird up the loins of your mind. And I quoted Philippians 4.8, Find thee, brethren, whatsoever things are uh, honest, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are good report. And I forgot one of them. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think, think on these things. You know what Satan does? He gets me on the bike and he causes me to think of all kinds of things. And I have to actually actively gird up my, the loins of my mind to think right, to be able to pray. And I called some of your names out in prayer. He works on our minds, folks. And He's working on your mind all the time. Even while I've been preaching this morning, He's brought thoughts in your mind to get you off the message, to get you out in left field in la-la land. And He's a master at manipulating our thoughts. And He puts terrible thoughts in our heads. He works on us all the time. That's His device. That's what it says here. If we don't forgive and release that person and comfort him and console him, then we're going to have trouble with our thought life because Satan's utilizing that bitterness, that judgmental attitude of yours to not forgive someone. Shame on all of us. God's a God of grace and He has forgiven me and He's forgiven you and then we ought to be people just like God and be people of grace. People make mistakes. Forgive them and set them free and set yourself free from all that Satan will do to destroy you. God help us to be people of grace. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your grace. Lord, I don't deserve Your grace. Man, have You given me grace over and over and over again. And Lord, there may be someone here today that needs grace from someone and they may need to come and say, I've done wrong, I need grace. And maybe there's others here that say, I, I harbor bitterness, I haven't forgiven, I need grace this morning to forgive, I can't forgive without God's help. And maybe God, there's someone here who's never been saved, they surely need grace from Calvary's blood washed away their sins. Blessed now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.